Hello, and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, or on one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners, or on the Green Majority podcast. My name is David Hostetter. I am with Stefan Hostetter. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, and we are in my bedroom, being swallowed by a giant vine. Saren Kaster and Lauren Latour will not be joining us today. But we hope we'll both be back next week. Yes. Yes. So, uh, we have uh, little idea what's happening or how long it will last, Stefan. It is true. The whole thing is eerily exposing how ill-prepared we are for such disasters. No one ever needs to hear the phrase new normal again for as long as they live. Nothing we have done has ever been normal. It has only been routine, and this routine has brought us to where we are now, having to halt almost everything about our society to slow the spread of a virus that is not going to definitively go away until we have a vaccine. And it's in no sense clear when that will be. I'm not going to list the atrocities happening around the world, but I'll look at a few of the dubious power imbalances that are being upheld in a time that should be about recognizing our mutual frailty and helping each other, rather than consolidating power. So, to start, in the United States, as uh, Anand Girdardas pointed out recently in an interview with Robert Reich, Blackstone Asset Management Company has recently given uh, $15 million to COVID relief efforts in New York, and yet that money is only a fraction of what the firm has saved by pressuring subsidiary companies to cut medical workers' wages and hours in the midst of the pandemic. So Blackstone was able to make a bunch of money screwing over healthcare workers and was then celebrated by Governor Cuomo for donating a little bit of that back to the cause. It's an illustration, and just one of many potential illustrations, of the way philanthropy is used to increase corporate power at the expense of those the corporation claims to be helping. Girdardas stated in the interview, quote, It is so hard to find anything to be grateful for right now, when the world is in the disastrous state it is, and people are experiencing such daily terror. You're grateful if you are safe and healthy right now. But I think there's another thing to be grateful for and to be hopeful about, which is that a lot of the bullshit is being revealed for what it is. The fires of crisis are throwing off a lot of light. When you see these folks who have pushed for years to create an America in which people are right now without health care, without paychecks, so precarious, and you hear these little gestures they make, it rings so hollow that I actually have some hope that people are going to come out of this seeing through these kind of performative corporate gestures that they never have before. Yeah, so a quick jump in here to to first uh, to cover a little bit about the... Uh, Girdas has done some incredible work around the concept of charitable giving and and the and the failures that 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 come with it um or more specifically how charitable giving has been used and shaped and molded especially in the united states especially by mega donors uh you know the, the people donating to their local food bank and stuff like that 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 still has some sort of direct tie-in but especially mega donations and and the way that people have been able to set up foundations and other stuff like that in charitable giving to actually increase their wealth like the charitable giving from larger nations in the united states is 
is is is is the reasons why you always hear in some ways about how everyone's not paying nearly as much tax as they should be. It's it's there's obviously loopholes and when they say loopholes, some of those loopholes are surrounding this concept of charitable giving. When people talk about closing loopholes, this is definitely one of those loopholes. Charitable giving, yes, uh, especially major major donations, especially. Um, and and very quickly, if I just if I can just this is a bit of a breaking news from today, which again is Wednesday. We record this on earlier, but if I can talk about to on on the on the concept of charitable giving, uh, you may have remembered last week uh, Jason Kenney had uh, donated uh, I say donated uh, seven point five billion dollars uh, to lent, key, lent uh, yes guaranteed that he would lend uh, but seven point five billion dollars. Uh, to the Keystone XL pipeline, which once again uh, has been blocked y- 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 because of more legal challenges, this time being blocked by uh, by a Montana judge uh, for failing to have uh, properly consulted uh, or, well, the, U- the, the, the discovery was that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers improperly uh, approved a streamlined permit process uh, in Montana. So yet again, the the charity uh, keeps on keeps on failing to to live up to its uh, its stated goals. So in Canada, the government is currently considering bailing out Airbnb, which is a company that is contributing to housing shortages across the country. And the government is also considering what it will do about the oil and gas sector, which could lead to further public investment in an industry that is swallowing our future, and in the companies that continue to lie about it. It's also becoming painfully obvious just how underpaid many people working essential jobs are. Jobs like picking food, selling food, and collecting garbage. For some perspective, the average garbage collector in Canada gets $16 an hour. The average grocery store worker gets $15 an hour, and your average food manufacturing workers also get $15 an hour. The people picking our food are often migrant workers who are taken advantage of because of their precarious visas. And uh, to turn back to the U.S., the Trump administration is actually planning on cutting the wages of a quarter of a million migrant farmers, farm workers because of their visa status, even though they've been declared essential workers. As Gerardo Reyes Chavez recently told Amy Goodman of Democracy Now!, quote, We, as workers, travel to work in crowded buses. We live in overcrowded spaces. Many of the people that come to work in the fields are people who are living inside trailers with five eight or ten people, sometimes even more. And we are expected to go to do this work because our job has been deemed essential. But the people who are doing this job are treated as expendable because no personal protective equipment has been given, no tests have been made available. Now, food workers in meat and poultry plants are also becoming increasingly vulnerable to the disease since some plants were never cleaned and others have remained open even though they're only producing for export. The meat industry in the U.S. is also taking advantage of the COVID crisis to further monopolize an industry in which four companies already control the vast majority of all production. They're also using the chaos of COVID to 
push to privatize meat inspection and make the whole inspection process more lax, pumping more disease and despair into the unseen aspects of U.S. meat production in order to pump out a few more zeros for themselves. The trend in the industry has been towards packing more and more animals into smaller spaces and hiring workers with the fewest rights. In that slaughterhouses employ immigrants, often undocumented, and usually deported if they express any desire not to be exploited. As Monona Hodder told Juan Gonzalez of Democracy Now!, quote, Pandemics like this begin in situations where animals are being produced, living in their own waste, breathing terrible fumes that give them viruses, and that it only takes a microbe's mutation to cause bacterial and viral diseases. We will see more pandemics if we don't change the way we produce meat. In fact, food. Yeah, so two things here. Um, the first is around, there's been a lot of criticism and noise coming out of the United States, especially, uh, around the vilification of, quote, wet markets uh, in China. And uh, this is, you know, because that is where the coronavirus was, was first found, shortly around, right, around, right around there. And so... Uh, and so there's been these calls to sort of end them or to, you know, to, to remove them because they are now being seen as dangerous. And yet the, those same people are, are shockingly, and I say shockingly with as much irony as I can put into the word, uh, silent in regards to the United States' practices around factory farming um, and, and the United States and the Western world, world in general, because to vilify one and ignore the other is is just is is racism. It's racism flat out. Uh, if you look at any of the data, if you listen to anyone who looks into this kind of work, um, the process around factory farming, especially in the states, because of what is what is allowed to be used there in regards to antibiotic use and stuff like that, um, is is a breeding ground for antibiotic-resistant strains of diseases. And that's separate from, I will say, separate from the virus we're currently experiencing. Antibiotic-resistant diseases are very different from, from virus-resistant diseases. But the, the thing about bacterial disease is that there could never be a, a, a vaccine. So you would never actually have the same kind of protection. Uh, you'd be constantly trying to develop an antibiotic, but the concern is that eventually you'll get to something that that is actually able to resist all of them, and that has been a constant concern and in deep, deep fear. And the the factory farming practices that we see now are one hundred percent leading to a much, much more likely existence of such a such a bug. And so that that's one quick thing. The second thing, though, um, is is around the migrant the migrant rights and the mind pieces, because while the the states in Trump trying to reduce their wages is one thing. The Canadian government is is no better, um, or at least not much better. I guess they are not actively trying to reduce their wages in this time, but they are certainly not providing any extra actual sort of support in any real way. Um, and so I wanted to highlight very quickly a, prog a program and a suggestion, and I said I should a demand, uh, from the Migrant Rights Network, which is across Canada. And they have their uh, migrant rights... Uh, migrant and worker justice demands uh, the coronavirus response must leave no one behind, and they have a similar. These are these are actually similar to the the just recover the just recovery demands that that were that I read out uh, previously, but slightly different. So I just want to read out the five in this sort of description. 
the first is healthcare for all, uh, access without fear, regardless of immigration status, to free, universal, and expanded healthcare, including testing. Number two is worker protections. Um, in times of quarantines and closures of schools and community spaces, the burden of care and cleaning will fall disproportionately to migrant and racialized women. And most migrant and undocumented workers don't have access to quit to paid sick leave and face reprisals for uneven sick days. Um, number three is to stop de- de- detentions and deportions and status for all to enact an immediate moratorium on all immigrant enforcement and detention and portions. Number four is to support the community and provide community support such as food banks, emergency shelters, and other services are essential for poor, disabled, indigenous, and other marginalized communities, as well as migrants and non-status people and their families. And these supports are at a breaking point, and so we must support them. And number five is those that know lead. Uh, The migrant and community organizations should be included in the planning and implementation at the current response uh, of the current response to ensure that no one is left behind. Uh, so that's from migrantrights.ca. You can support their uh, their petition there. But these are another another example of how the multifaceted responses we're going to need to this this process and this disease. I just now want to pull some highlights from Noam Chomsky's recent appearance in conversation with Amy Goodman, because everything he says is insightful, but he gets no play on regular media outlets. So last week, Chomsky said to Goodman, quote, The worst crime Bernie Sanders committed, in the eyes of the establishment, is not the policy he's proposing. It's the fact that he was able to inspire popular movements which had already been developing. Occupy, Black Lives Matter, many others, and turn them into an activist movement, which doesn't just show up every couple years to push a leader and then go home, but applies constant pressure, constant activism, and so on. That could affect a Biden administration. It could also, even if it's just a holding action, mean there's time to deal with the major crises. These are health, climate change, and nuclear war. He goes on to say the Republican Party is just monstrous. It no longer qualifies as a political party. It simply sheepishly echoes everything the master says. Zero integrity. It's just amazing to watch. He surrounded himself by a collection of sycophants who just repeat worshipfully everything he says. Real major attack on democracy, alongside the attack on the survival of humanity. Chomsky went on to say how major banks are being motivated to pull out of fossil fuels to protect their reputations because of activist pressure, and how similar activist engagement also recently took the Green New Deal mainstream. He also pointed out that even with Biden as the Democratic nominee, the 2020 U.S. election is still literally the most important election in human history. When asked what gives him hope, he said, quote, Take the doctors and nurses who are working overtime under extremely dangerous conditions, lacking, especially in the United States, lacking even minimal support, being compelled to make these agonizing decisions about who to kill tomorrow. But they're doing it. It's an inspiring tribute to the resources of the human spirit, a model of what can be done, along with the popular actions 
the moves to create a progressive international. These are all very positive signs. But you look back in recent history, there have been times when things looked really hopeless and desperate. I can go back to my early childhood, the late 30s, early 40s. It looked as though the rise of the Nazi plague was inexorable, victory after victory. It looked like you couldn't stop it. It was the most horrible development in human history. Well, it turns out, I didn't know that at the time, that U.S. planners were expecting that the post-war world would be divided between a U.S.-controlled world and a German-controlled world, including all of Eurasia. A horrifying idea. Well, it was overcome. There have been other serious, the civil rights movement, young freedom riders going out into Alabama to try to encourage black farmers to go to vote, despite the threat of being murdered and being murdered themselves. These were some. This is examples of what humans can do and have done. And we see many signs of it today. And that's the basis for hope. Yeah, I think it's very useful to be reminded uh, of how, what it must felt like to be living through the 30s right now. Um, and it's, it's, it's honestly somewhat amazing to me that even imagining being a person living through the 30s and, and trying to guess what was going to happen or trying to expect what would happen. But I remember in 2016 uh, asking older folks if they'd experienced something at the scale of how it felt when Trump won. You know, he had sort of he had just he had just won in this shocking victory to at least me, and I remember the the day and it felt like everyone was sort of wandering around in shock, and I and I sort of was like, does any like you know people who had lived through previous things does this feel like anything else that you've experienced? And and the closest anyone came was Nixon, um, but this is different. Um, now it sort of feels like the beginning of something larger. Something on the scale of the Great Depression. I can't help but feel that the narrative that people tell themselves that as we move out of this will shape the rest of the century. You know, um, do we tell ourselves that we are powerless and that we just want to return to some sort of routine? Uh, or do we tell ourselves that we can, that what's going, that going back to what was is unacceptable? You know, do we shift the power back to those who are doing the work? as we've seen in many places where corporations uh, are found to have to beg their employees who've walked off the job due to inadequate protective equipment to return to work? Um, or you know, do we see a rejection of the massively growing wealth inequality and a support for something like wealth taxes and inheritance taxes and the kinds of things that would be needed so desperately to actually, A, not only re to both rebuild our infrastructure, um, both here and in the States, but also to, to, to bring some people back into the realm of, of consequences, to be perfectly honest, you know, like the, the level of richness that exists now, which basically makes you in impossible to persecute, uh, prosecute, sorry, and persecute to be honest, but you know, it, 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 it the level of wealth and call we see right now has only ended in, in revolution previously. And so, and so if we have to find another way to scale it back, um, you know, th these questions continue. Do we understand that our lives, that our lives are now global? You know, if anything, this experience of COVID should teach us that there's nothing we can do to get ourselves out of some version of a global life. And so that what affects anyone in the world affects us.
and so that any response that does not support the livelihoods of the world as a whole will be inadequate. You know, uh, there, these are the questions that we'll be facing over the next few years. And I say few years because, you know, even if we are out of self-isolation after the first wave in July, you know, the, the, the general consensus seems pretty clear that we're not going to escape any type of full return to just being out to do whatever we like uh, until until a vaccine comes. And then at that point, you will begin to see the real response, I think, from economic response to trying to rebuild the economy, which, you know, then again, takes years. And so I, I've I've been thinking about this a, a bunch recently, and I've been wrong many times before. Um, but I'm increasingly convinced that the next few years will be the most important uh, in in my lifetime. Um, what we do now and going forward cannot be understated, and a return to what we were do, what we were before will be the most disa- the most dangerous decision that our species has ever made. You know, when we talk about the fact that we only have ten years to solve climate. Uh, our our climate crisis and then you pair that with the concept of spending the next three four years of this recovery rebuilding the fossil fuels uh, and the fossil fuel dominated paradigm that we live in then you have six years to unbuild that again which is you know the the 10-year timeline was was nearly impossible as it was a six-year timeline after a re-ramp back into what we were previously will be a momentum that I think that I fear would be unsolvable. And so, you know, I, I, I truly, truly think that the response that we have now and over the next couple of years is going to be uh, the game on climate change, really. There was that article that you sent me, which now I've forgotten who wrote it, um, but the argument was that once this, once we do begin going back outside, mm-hmm. once things do begin to return to some sort of collective routine, there will be a concerted and coordinated effort on the parts of uh, those who wield media power and advertising power and so forth, governments and, and businesses corporations uh to sort of blur over what has been exposed here to sort of say you look look back look back at the screen and think about what you were thinking about before this crisis uh hit and sort of pretend almost as though it didn't happen almost as though it didn't expose what it exposed almost as though it didn't uh show us the the skeleton the skeleton of the structure uh, as it stands. Yeah. Yeah. The article you're referring to is called uh, Prepare for the Ultimate Gaslighting and is written by Julio Vincent Gambuto, mm-hmm. uh, which can be found on uh, on Medium if you Google it. But yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's because because that's the game, right? The the response, I you know, I'll go back to that that one quick thing that I said at the top of top of this, that I really do think that the the story that we tell ourselves coming out of this, the narrative that we allow to exist coming out of this crisis is going to be the narrative that drives the next 20, 30, maybe a hundred years. 
uh, you know, in the same way that in 2001, the narrative that came out of out of 9-11, you know, was that global terrorism is the threat of our time. And that has in that and that the forever wars that came out of that response has got have got us to where we are today. I truly think that the narrative that we tell ourselves coming out of this is going to define the rest of at least my life. The like if we tell ourselves that the response is let's just get back to normal and nothing and we want just quote unquote normalcy, we'll find ourselves in a world that is run by three or four major companies in every single place. Um, you know, you know the, the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks will just be will will continue to control more and more and more. Uh, and so like I yeah I I truly think that this moment is incredibly important and incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And so like anything you can do to support any of the movements right now growing to try to, you know, put power in the hands of active people, like if you're, if you're waiting for the time to get involved right now in the next couple years is the time to do that. Because I truly can underscore how important I think it will be. So Brendan Montague published a piece in Resurgence and Ecologist magazine back in January in which he argued that the concept of economic growth will increasingly dominate our conversations. He writes, quote, Economic growth promises to solve one of the great conflicts of capitalism. Investors can get a return on their cash, and the rest of us can enjoy improvements to our everyday lives. There is no longer a need to fight over the pie because each year the pie gets bigger. But the reality is much more complex and much more threatening. The belief that growth is entirely necessary is itself a driver of climate breakdown. There is one cohort of people who indisputably need growth. Investors. All investors want a return on investment. This is the reason they risk staking their money on business ventures. He goes on to argue that because we haven't been able to decouple economic activity from environmental impacts... Investors, in order to make money, are necessarily going to be harming the environment to keep the capitalist economy going. We therefore need to be able to move wealth around without relying on personal profit, which governments could potentially do by borrowing for free or at very low interest rates in times of international economic uncertainty. Then we have the concept of degrowth, which Montague writes is about, quote, deliberately deflating or shrinking the global economy reducing the amount of economic activity. The essentials, food, shelter, health services, could be improved and expanded, but we would produce fewer cars and iPhones. The question comes down to this. Should we be focusing our societies on real wealth, free time, connection, creative expression, rather than the artificial needs, such as mouthwash and smartwatches, created by the advertising industry to keep the production consumption whirligig turning to satisfy billionaire investors. Of, uh, end quote. Of course, uh, many environmental activists have been putting their bodies on the line to force the massive de-escalation of economic activity in greater and greater numbers as the climate crisis has come into starker view. So now we'll turn to an article by Anitra Nelson and Vincent Leagy published in The Ecologist on April 3rd, called Coronavirus and Degrowth, in which they write, quote, 
no crisis could so sharply throw into relief the fragility and precariousness of capitalist societies characterized by global production for trade and profits. Weak states led by bureaucratic elites and citizens experiencing anime, individualism, and alienation. But this is not a wholly new crisis, rather just a variation on an old capitalist crisis theme. Anti-capitalist, post-growth, and post-capitalist movements such as Occupy and Extinction Rebellion, have made headlines in the last few decades in response to glowing, glo growing global economic, political, and social crises. Another such movement is degrowth. The authors stress Ivan Illich's degrowth concept of conviviality, a cooperative, mutual, sociable, and sharing approach sidelining experts and technocrats. And they write that the first principle of degrowth is to address inequality, partially through direct and local control, that is, quote, appropriate to building a society around frugal abundance, the only type of abundance that exists for the degrowth movement. But the degrowth movement is far from Puritan, and instead convivial and celebratory. In this way, humans can nurture the earth as it nurtures us. If we had systems of production by locals for locals, simply satisfying our basic needs, no more but no less, there would be few economic repercussions in applying social distancing and isolation to slow down and contain a global pandemic. We would live as collectively sufficiently as possible and self-organize uh, to observe health-safe protocol in our modest livelihoods. And finally, as Peter Victor told Steve Pakin on TVO recently, quote, one of the problems of the priority that we give to economic growth is that whenever anybody proposes something else for environmental purposes or to improve the distribution of income, the question is, what will that do for growth? So growth is not just something we decide whether we want or not. The pursuit of it is impeding our capacity to achieve all of these other goals. He also argues that moving to a service economy is still not helping our greenhouse gas emissions, and since we have to reduce our carbon emissions by 50% per dollar spent, we can't be celebrating increased consumption as an indicator of societal health. He goes to talk about various simulation models he's run, arguing that govern governments will still be getting more tax money under a no-growth scenario. He says, quote, In one of my scenarios, where we slow down the rate of growth until the economy is not growing at all, we're actually better off than we are today. We're just not as rich as we would have been if we pursued a growth rate of 2 to 3 to 4% indefinitely uh, into the future. So when you say the government will have less tax money, it's less than what? It's not less than we have now, but less than what we would have if we were successful in that awful pursuit of never-ending economic growth, we were, where we would definitely need even more money to solve our problems. So it's finding that balance between a slower rate of growth, maybe no growth, maybe degrowth, and then how we allocate the output of the economy to the different things that we need. Yeah. So a few years ago, uh, actually right around the time I started on the show, I believe, uh, I did a series of, of writing uh, for Alternatives Journal, which... Uh, about the concept of, of growth, really trying to understand the concept of whether or not uh, growth was, well, that if, if whether infinite growth on a finite planet was an oxymoron was basically the concept. 
And my main takeaway uh, was that the minute you start getting deep into the weeds about the meaning of growth, I spent honestly a bunch of time just asking different people what the term growth meant in economic terms. And never was there ever a perfectly clear explanation as to how it entirely actually worked. Um, you know, there, every complication seemed to get it sort of more mired in a, a, a set of things that made it a little more confusing. Uh, ultimately, the, the series ends actually with a conversation with a friend of the show, Tim Nash, where he makes the pitch that you could continue to see growth if you started expanding what was considered uh, what you included in economic uh, in the in the economy. So basically, if you started actually increasing the idea that social capital could be somehow actually really included in, in a monetary economy, you could see growth that could be more decoupled from the economy. But that is a prelude to basically say that like it's it's level of de- detail uh, and that's difficult to not misstate uh, when spoken. And so I'm going to leave the technical pieces to the experts that you already quoted. Um, but what this is what this does bring up for me is something that I've been thinking about. Uh, as we read the reports of CO2 emissions dropping in this time, which is that it, I think when you see those reports, you can see yourself being excited as an environmentalist. You know, the, the, the fact that we are seeing the reductions of pollution in different air pollution in different places, uh, or the fact that, you know, that we might actually see a decrease in emissions this year, those are, you know, tied to the concept of good news for us. Um, but I think that's a, I, I want to put a pretty big, if not complete, uh, you know, block on, on that thought process, because while that is true, it's, it's not the world of, of degrowth. It's not the world that the environmentalists want. Uh, you know, the emission reductions are real, but the changes to society that we're seeing right now in many ways are directly contradictory, uh, to the changes that that we would need from a society uh, to to actually get to the place where we are experiencing, you know, net net zero emissions or or actually zero emissions or even negative emissions, except for not flying, um, we should definitely stop flying uh, or keep not flying as much as humanly possible. Uh, that that's the that ends cruise ships. Both of those things should probably be reduced to as little as we can. Uh, cruise ships probably entirely, but, um, but when you're seeing the in what when we're what we're seeing actually though is, is the, the other pieces though are much more concerning. You know, uh, when you see the 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 increase in China. So as China has begun to reopen, uh, they've started doing studies on on how people are moving around, and you see a massive drop in the use of a public transit. You know, for obvious reasons, you need social distance, and a massive increase in personal vehicles. Uh, which, you know, going forward cannot be the norm. That cannot be the way that we continue to move around uh, long term. You know, um, n- that when you, when, you ex- when you think about the massively inefficient processes that we're currently experiencing of, be- of, of cars driving around delivering groceries at every person's individual house um, or, or, or food, you know, let alone all of the waste that everything is coming in because everything has to be like triple packaged. You know, these are clearly not the type of society we actually need to live in. And, and then most importantly, I think when you think of the loss of connecting to people in, in a community and together, you know, um, what we're seeing today is a, should be a warning sign 
uh, and, and not a beacon for, for what a lower emission, lower emissions could look like, you know, that, that community piece is, I think, central because, to live a good life, even as mentioned, as you mentioned in, in the, in, in some of the, or as you quoted from some of the people, the ability to live in community with other people is, if anything, what I'm taking away from this experience is, of being isolated is so important. Like people are not okay right now. (laughs) And that is totally reasonable and right and understandable because people are not being given the ability to, interact in community to be with others there's only so many zoom calls that you can pretend are the same as actually just hanging out in a community around people you know there's only so many things that we can that we can try to replace the the truly few things that bring people life lifelong and sustainable joy and so much of that is being in community in a in a direct you know human to human space and, and we're not getting that right now. And, and so what I think, you know, going back to this narrative conversation, I think that's got to be part of it. Part of the narrative has to be coming out of this, the concept that community w- must be uh, lifted up into a level of importance of that it deserves, because that's ultimately what brings us the most joy. When you ask people at the end of their lives, what made them the happiest you know their response is not that they made millions of dollars the response is their ability to be around people and and their loved ones and their friends and their family um and that is a way to maintain a happiness and increase happiness in a way that actually undermines uh the the need for this consumptive model that you sort of referenced a couple times uh in different parts of the show you know that's the thing that we had to focus on (laughs) 